Welcome to another episode of Wheel Adventures. This is episode two, The Wheels Go Round. And what Ringe and I are going to talk about are, is, am. <laughs> <laughs> Our grammar. <laughs> it's a non-binary episode. That's right. Okay. Um, and uh, whatever pronoun you choose, what we're going to talk about is kind of our, my, and our evolution on the various vehicles we've used to travel, ranging from human-powered to two-wheel motorcycle to four-wheel drive off-road vehicles. I was just jotting down some notes here, and I, I was thinking about what are my priorities when I have built a vehicle, whether it's a bicycle or... And when I talk about human-powered vehicles... Instead of saying just saying a bicycle, I'm actually kind of incl- being inclusive of the other human-powered vehicle that I ride, which is a recumbent trike. So I just want to clarify that so that it makes sense. So I I've I started bicycle touring in 1977. Part of that tour lit my imagination about riding and being in places where there isn't pavement. And there, I think I might have mentioned in the intro episode, the previous episode, about this one section that was about 60 miles in Montana that was, was gravel. It was just a nice gravel road. And it, I just was, it just felt like I was just really out there. Like I was in in a lot more natural setting and it was more scenic somehow. It felt like I was going back in time, like I had jumped into a time machine and gone back to a time before paved roads. And that felt really cool. I loved that. And so that led to me building a, a bicycle, a touring bicycle that was suited specifically for off-pavement riding. And I set it up in the same way that, for the most part, I, I, I did as best I could f- for the time that it was, which was in 1978, um, with the same priorities that I set up my motorcycles, uh, helped my wife set up her motorcycle, and that we have prepared our four-wheel drive vehicles and that is with the priorities being uh, first and foremost safety. And some of these things have crossover. They kind of relate to each other. But safety, um, gear capacity, in other words, the ability to carry luggage, something, for example, on a lot of motorcycles until recently, this has gotten better because more and more people are getting into what what is termed in motorcycling, uh, motorcycle overlanding adventure uh, riding. And that is the ability to carry gear. It's one of the things that really always appealed to me about BMW motorcycles is because pretty much every model they made came from the factory with the ability to put bags on it. Whereas other brands, even now, it's just kind of a nightmare trying to get get hard bags on there. You know, soft bags may be easier. But... uh, that's one of the reasons why I always went with BMW, because they were ready from the factory to carry your gear. And if you're going to travel, you know, if you're going out for a day, 
it's like whatever you know you can throw a little backpack on and carry a few essentials or have a tank bag or whatever on your motorcycle but you you have to be able to carry gear and all the way extending into four-wheel drive vehicles where are you going to put your stuff is it inside is it outside and so forth so my priorities safety gear capacity comfort uh and comfort is related to safety with motorcycles and also with uh with bicycle touring or touring by recumbent trike or recumbent bike um because my my feeling is is that if you're not comfortable this isn't so much an issue with a four-wheel drive vehicle because basically an suv or a van like our sportsmobile you don't get too much more comfortable than that but there's still people will uh, uh not to get too sidelined on this but um People will prioritize that to the extent of spending a couple thousand dollars on Shieldman seats for their rig because they're really, really comfortable. Um, so comfort and safety are both very crucial in motorcycle touring because if you start getting uncomfortable, your fatigue factor goes up, your attention level goes down, your reaction time goes down, and you're more likely to have an accident. So having having really comfortable posture is something that's extremely important. Your hand position, your back position. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of Harley Davidson motorcycles. Sorry for all of the cruiser guys out there, but I find that when I'm doing long distance riding, touring day after day, that when my feet are forward of, un, you know, forward of my body, uh, my back slouches. My spine collapses, and if you have a backrest on your on your cruiser bike, it definitely helps. But it doesn't keep you in an alert position because your your spine is not being supported by your posture. You're just kind of slouching. Convenience, convenient, in convenience in terms of the GPS, uh, your maps where they're located so that you're not having to tear into something to figure out where you're going, your convenience of stopping and starting and then the stuff that you need quickly when you get off the bike. When you're in a four-wheel drive vehicle, you want to have your iPad or your Garmin GPS uh, in a place where you can see it without having to pull it out and have to stop the vehicle or get distracted when you're driving, having your phone with a Bluetooth system that you can, if you get a call, you can instantly answer it, having your radio at hand so that you can grab the mic easily, so that all of these things kind of tie together together so that you're 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 not stressed. You're not having to deal with stuff that is, that's complicated and takes your attention away from what you need to be doing, which is paying attention to the road. Independence. That's, that relates to the ability to do your recovery. Um, I have an embarrassing story to tell about the, the first time that I, I rode the, uh, actually, it was the first time anybody on a motorcycle ever rode from Canada to Mexico along the Great Divide mountain bike route. I was with my friend Clement Salvadori. Uh, we were having an awesome 
ride through from, uh, it was eastern Idaho into the Tetons and towards Yellowstone National Park. And I was flying along on this great double track dirt road. It was dusty and I was, I was on a lighter motorcycle than Clement was. And so I was way ahead of him, quite a bit farther ahead of him. And all of a sudden I felt the rear end get really squirmy and I stopped and I pulled a 10 penny nail out of my back tire. I'd neglected to bring the proper equipment to repair that flat. I didn't bring a spare tube. It was really ridiculous. It was, it was because I have, in all of the thousands and thousands of miles that I have ridden motorcycles, I never had a flat, and it just didn't occur to me. I didn't bring tire irons. I didn't bring a spare tube. Uh, I had a pump because I was airing my bike down and airing it back up. It What ensued was it was on the 4th of July in 2001, and I had to go all the way into Jackson Hole. On his motorcycle, I left him in, in grizzly bear country, unprotected. I did give him my pepper spray. Oh, you in left case. him behind. I left, him, you? <laughs> I left him behind. He let me ride his motorcycle oh. with my rear wheel on the back because okay. he he had a, a plug kit. He was running, you know, a BMW 1150GS Adventure, which it doesn't run tubes. Um, but he let me run his motorcycle with my rear wheel strapped to his bike. So I rode that into Jackson Hole, and it took me like hours to find anybody in a shop that was available on the 4th of July to get that rear wheel off. And I don't know if I couldn't, could have even done it in the, in the back country because we had to use uh, automobile tire irons to get that bead off. It was so tight. I don't know why, but it was nightmarish. Uh, I got it fixed and we got it and I got back and Clement hadn't been mauled or devoured by a bear. Did he get into the wine though? Uh, <laughs> she's referring to Clement loves good wine and he had a bottle of red wine every night whether we needed it or not to consume so I don't think he he drank the red wine because we still had riding to do that day uh, he uh, yeah anyways long story short independence means having the right gear that you can deal with Essentially, most things that might come up, and in a four-wheel drive vehicle, it entails recovery gear. And on a motorcycle, bring your bring your tire repair equipment in case you have a flat. There's some things you can't deal with, like we were on a ride once on the Barlow Trail in um, uh, Hood River National Forest with a group of other uh, adventure riders, uh, dual sport riders. I was riding a Honda. 650XL, and my uh, counter shaft sprocket uh, crapped the bed, and I couldn't go anywhere. So fortunately, we had a we had a tow line, and we connected it to another rider on a big big BMW, and he towed me out. And uh, that's also something that you might want to practice because that's the first time I ever got towed. And there are certain procedures to follow so that you don't crash each other. And we uh, followed those, and it was really a good practice to do that. So 
Can I interject? That, yeah, okay, yeah. So I stayed behind because you were coming back to meet me, pick me up, and we were continuing on from there, right? But I stayed behind, and it was hours and hours that I was waiting with, like, no cell signal. Because I couldn't find you. No way to reach you. Yeah. And then when you finally... I it was cold and dark. Back. It was starting to get colder and darker, and you had a hard time finding me. Yeah. So none of that was ideal. It was an adventure for sure. Because coming back with the uh, with the car, with the trailer, right. uh, was not the same route to yeah. access the little lake where you were at as I rode out to get the car. Down in Apple Valley. We didn't drop a pin or something using our phones, right? That would have been no. a smart thing to do. But then you have to have a cell signal to be able to access the map to get it to hook into that, I think. Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah, we weren't really well prepared on the whole thing. Eventually, I found you, and you were cold and starving, but yeah, there was a nice gentleman at the, that was camped there. Yeah, he was sharing his campfire with me. Sharing campfire, gave <laughs> you some food. some chocolate chip and, cookies or something. Yeah, no, it, it could have been a bad situation. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, uh, prior planning prevents poopy situations. <laughs> I, I can't remember the rest of it, but that's how it goes. So... When we're talking about setting a vehicle up, whether it's a human-powered vehicle or a two-wheel motorized vehicle or four-wheel drive vehicle, those are pretty much the parameters that I, I try and pay attention to to set it up. And with a four-wheel drive vehicle, you've got a lot more leeway to to accommodate things and there's a term on motor with motorcycling uh that was uh, originally coined by the the folks that were doing long distance road riding on honda st1100s and there was a big group that was doing iron butt association sort of rides like thousand mile day rides on the st1100 because it was well suited for that and they were finding that by equipping it with Things like lights and a fuel cell, so that you could go farther, and putting a more uh, appropriate custom saddle on it, and uh, throttle lock, things like that. Uh, the term for putting all that those goodies on your motorcycle were farkles. <laughs> this is something that the overlanding four wheel drive overlanding community has not become familiar with, and I'm here to tell you that. If you have any kind of overlanding vehicle and you're putting racks and recovery gear and lights, those are farkles. What does that stand for? Like farts and sparkles or what? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Fancy sparkles. I don't know. I, I, but farkles (laughs) is a cool word. Um, and it, and it pertains to all of the cool stuff that, I mean, if you see something like a, a Jeep Wrangler, you know, that has no farkles, it's just plain Jane. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy's not doing anything with that, right? And The difference between farkles, uh, uh, functional. Functional sparkles. Maybe functional that's it. Sparkles. Yeah, I, I used to know the, the, the derivative of 
where this contraction yeah no i've asked you before word comes from but i i don't but i think functional sparkles because it is all about function you know like harley cruiser riders they like to they like to put you know leather fringe on their handlebars and you know lunatic fringe and and chrome and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what they like but it's not functional it's fashion you know it's it's driveway jewelry whereas people that are doing ultra long distance riding or adventure touring it's the 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 beauty comes from seeing something that's functional and i think the same sort of thing applies to overlanding vehicles you know like uh uh you know, when you, you have any overlanding vehicle, you know, like an, a Jeep Wrangler or uh, an Earth Cruiser or whatever, if it's got all kinds of armor, it's functional. We look at it and go, oh, my God, that's so cool because it looks burly. Mm-hmm. We're, we're getting aesthetic enjoyment and, and pleasure from seeing something that is functional mm-hmm. rather than just fear, per, purely for fashion. Right. Right. But we also like it if it's super cool looking, that it does have an aesthetic to it, a burly aesthetic, a very functional But it emerges out of, the, out of the functionality of mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, I was down at Earth Cruiser the other day because we're going to do an episode with Earth Cruiser with Lance and um, I believe his wife's name is Michelle and uh, Ellen, who's doing their new adventure program for Earth Cruiser owners. And they're they're super cool looking, but it's all about the function, you know. They're they're just ultimately functional, and that that beauty it, it emerges from that function. So that's that's kind of the approach that I've always tried to have with whatever travel vehicle I'm using and employing. And so I started with four-wheel drive vehicles i think i mentioned i had a a early model of the suzuki samurai the lj20 and we just loaded backpacking gear in the back of it because that's about all the room you had for putting anything in it plus it's it was so underpowered you really couldn't have much weight in there you wanted to go on a diet before you took it on a trip just to so that you could get the thing above 45 (laughs) miles an hour i spent you know it was like driving a moped it was like a four-wheel drive moped because it was two cycle as two stroke engine right and so um it there were a lot of instances where we were driving on the side of the road uh, on the shoulder so that we weren't holding up traffic (laughs) no literally and we tried to take as many dirt roads up into wyoming as we could you know back through uh uh, buckhorn canyon uh, uh, i think it was buckhorn canyon up over pennock pennock pass into Wyoming, northern northern uh, Colorado, southern Wyoming. And then when I got a Suzuki Samurai, the first thing I, I did was try and find a roof rack. Back then, all I could find was, I, I think I had to put like Thule bars on there and buy some really flimsy aluminum roof rack that they made for like minivans or whatever. And uh, But I knew I needed a roof rack because... You know, that's what safari vehicles, uh, you know, like Land Rover Defenders from, 
you know, things I'd, pictures I'd seen in National Geo in, in Africa. It's like, I need to get a roof rack on this. And it was out of function, you know. It wasn't just like, oh, it'll look cool because it'll look like a defender. It's like, I need some extra room because the samurai was so small. And so that was my early progression. You know, when we went to the uh, a number of Isuzu troopers, we had a lot more space, so a roof rack wasn't as important. When Renge and I started getting back into the whole overlanding activity in 2017, we, we looked at all of the different vehicles that were out there. I mean, the majority of people then and still are, are, are choosing older Toyota Land Cruisers, or if you have the budget for it, newer ones. Uh, they're using the Tacomas, really popular, the trucks. The choices have expanded quite a bit since then, but back back several years ago, there were very few instances that I could find online of people using Hummer H3s. And when I looked at the objective attributes of that vehicle, I found it to be better than a lot of things that, that the majority of the people were following the crowd to do. I mean, for example, it comes with steel bumpers front and rear even though i put an arb bumper and in a winch on it uh it comes with recovery points from the factory it came with skid plates from the factory came with lockers from the factory and it was it was really designed for overlanding before that became a term in the early 2000s you know I don't think it really started to stick as a term until fairly recently. What year was our Hummer? Um, it was a 2008, and they stopped making them in 2010 because they got a bad rap. You know, a lot of a lot of um, chrome was being put on them, and they were... It was either gangster or soccer mom, it seemed like, these two yeah. sort of extremes. Yeah, exactly. Neither it, of which regular adventurers really yeah yeah align themselves with well in the whole enviro ethic of uh which i'm not putting down in any way but the enviro ethic of oh if you drive a hummer you kill the earth you're killing the earth you know it's what there were episodes on south park where people were being represented as you know the the kind of stereotypical uh hummer driver that was killing the earth that just doesn't care about anybody but himself has a lot of money it's like screw everybody i'm going to just guzzle all the gas but the interesting thing is is that if you look at the actual miles per gallon the fuel economy of an h3 it's better than it's way better than a lexus uh, gx 460 or a 470 better than a land cruiser better than an fj cruiser you name it all the pickup trucks. Wow. Even the H2 was no worse than your average half-ton, three-quarter-ton pickup from a few years ago. It's like they all used a lot of gas. It's, you know, but the, the Hummer became the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And people have a tendency to take this perspective of, of the, the, without looking any deeper or thinking any more deeply. They just jump to these knee-jerk reactions it's what killed the Isuzu Trooper, which was an amazing vehicle. I've had three of them. But because of one, basically one fuckknuckle at Consumer Reports who didn't know how to drive because a car and driver 
is car and driver road and track both broke this down from looking at the pictures of the testing, the skid pad testing, to show that it was driver error that caused the the driver of the consumer report driver of the Isuzu Trooper. They did this with the Suzuki Samurai, and it killed both of these vehicles. So they said they're unsafe. They'll roll over. Any SUV that is high has a high center of gravity will do that if you don't know how to drive them. If you have have abrupt steering input that goes first one direction and then the other. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. So people had this knee-jerk reaction to, I'm not going to drive a trooper because they're dangerous. They'll roll over. I'm not going to drive a samurai. Actually, the samurai was amazing. I used to drive pro rally. I used to drive hill climb. I used to race snow and ice. And I can tell you that I've driven both of those vehicles at nine-tenths on isolated dirt roads, four-wheel drifting, and I can tell you they handle as bad, as well as any other vehicle like that and, and better than a lot. So I want to say about the Hummer. I, I want to get off my soapbox on that. But yeah. I want to uh, add that about the Hummer that I think that prejudice and tunnel vision in a sense or maybe just go with the fads, go with what popular wisdom, quote-unquote, is out there benefited us hugely and we were able to buy that vehicle for a really affordable price and it was a fantastic ride both on and off the road it was so comfortable i think i read it was a semi-luxury vehicle it it had great suspension it was spacious you felt so safe in it not like i'm somebody who oh it was solid unsafe and it was in a vehicle generally yeah but I really felt like, wow, I am really, yeah, it just felt super solid. Um, you Unlike the, the H2 common. that we test drove. Yeah, the H2. That was one of the complaints with the big Hummer, the H2, because it was very plasticky. We wrote, we drove yeah. a used Don't one. Don't recommend those. They looked cheap. It was, they wore poorly. Yeah. Not good. But the H3 was fantastic. And Mark would sometimes comment, especially toward the, toward the end of our relationship with ours, that the about the windows being small and kind of feeling like you were in some sort of portholes. Yeah, portholes. Little portholes. But I never was bothered by that. Um, That's because you're five six and I'm six one. Ah, could be, could be. <laughs> um, the main thing for me, actually, with any vehicle, is I'd love to have a sunroof because I want to be able to stand up and do three sixty video and get great shots that I literally cannot get. Uh, with any vehicle we've been in because there's always you know there's parts of the vehicle in the way and there's the antenna and so on so i need a sunroof honey no what you need is a machine gun turret like like on the the def uh or the daf uh uh, overlanding uh truck that our friends jeff and Rhonda drive it's a retired Dutch military vehicle oh. that was built by a previous owner, and they're driving it now. But they still have the machine gun turret <laughs> on the top of the cab that they can open up and photograph through or, or equip with you. a 20-millimeter cannon if you need to. <laughs> and the way things are going, maybe that's not a bad idea for that's overlanding. Not a bad idea. Yeah, maybe we all have to be uh, <laughs> looking in that direction. So, so where are we Where are we at now? We're well, with, at so the, the Hummer. Hummer. And then, well, we we had the Hummer, and we went through the way we equipped it, 
is we put an ARB bumper on uh, with a worn winch. I put a, we went to a, at the time we went with a, because CVT is right in town, we got a really good deal on a demo CVT Mount Shasta rooftop tent. What's CVT? Cascadia Vehicle Tents. And so we, we put a rooftop tent on, and I'm like, where are we going to put other stuff? Because the rooftop tent pretty much took up the whole roof. So I got a uh, rack that was custom-made for the Hummer H2 that went uh, that bolted to the mount for the r- r- spare tire in the rear, which is another thing about the Hummer H3. Not all vehicles, like, you know, for example, the, the Land Cruiser, the Lexus um, four six 470s, they, or the 460s, they don't have um, rear-mounted spare tires. They go either inside the vehicle or underneath in front of the bumper, underneath in the undercarriage. And the Hummer comes with a spare tire on the back door, which is, like, awesome. you got to spend a lot of money on some of these other vehicles to get it to do what the Hummer does right out of the box, just even the most basic Hummer. So we um, we got that rack, and that's where I put uh, things like uh, water bottle, uh, Rotopex water, Rotopex gas. I put recovery treads back there. I made a mount for it so I could hold it back there. We put our small five-pound propane bottle back there. We mounted a, the same company that did the, the rear rack for the spare tire does a, I don't know if they still do it, but they, they I think it was called Outfitter Designs. They do a fold-down table for the tailgate that opens up. I put a number of lights various places inside so we could more than just the, you know, the, the dome lights. I uh, converted everything to LEDs. I put ARB lights, driving lights on the front. I I don't like fake stuff. Yeah. I hate fake stuff like the stupid plastic fake vent on the hood of the Hummer. Really was disturbing. That that was just just stupid. So I I removed that which was not easy. I had to use a bread knife from the kitchen to saw through the glue that held it. So I removed that, and I took the plastic thing into a, a guy who plasma-cut diamond plate, the same size. I bolted it to the hood. Then I, I had a at Zamp Solar that's, that's here in town. Uh, they sold me a 20-watt solar panel that I mounted to the to that diamond plate with spacers. So it was elevated a little bit, you know, quarter inch above the hood. And I ran the wires down to the AGM battery that we put in. I didn't run a dual, a built-in dual battery system because there's not a lot of room under the hood of that vehicle. There just isn't much room in there. The, the motor's taken up everything. And I know you can do it, but it's I just didn't want to deal with it. So because we were running a refrigerator in the back, I wanted a means when we were parked to keep the battery topped off when we were hiking or walking someplace, hiking, whatever, shopping in a restaurant. I wanted the the, the battery to, to be able to cope with 
with powering the refrigerator, the ARB-type fridge that we had in the back. So we mounted the solar panel to the hood, and it worked great. I so put limb risers on. Okay, yeah. What happened that one time that we were at Heart Mountain? and That was pre-solar panel, by the way. Okay. All right, yeah. good. Yeah, what she's referring to is the first time we went to Heart Mountain with the Hummer. We had the refrigerator going, and I didn't realize how much juice it was using and it, we couldn't start the car the next day. I think we were there for a couple of days, and we weren't getting. Um, yeah, we we had the fridge going, and we went to leave, and it was like, click, 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 click. Mm-hmm. There's fortunately there was a guy there with a four wheel drive sports mobile van who uh, was able to come out. He's the last person that was left in the campground, and this is, hard, we're going to do an episode that we we recently did another trip to, to Heart Mountain in our sportsmobile van. And uh, it's it's pretty isolated. Like, you, you're a long ways from any garage that could come and jump you. So fortunately, he was the last guy that was left at the campground. He came over and jumped us. But, yeah, we learned really quickly that we need to have a way to monitor voltage and... Uh, after that, we got at the 20, I think it was the 2017 Overland, Pacific Northwest Overland Rally we went to from overlandsolar.com that was there as a vendor next to us. We bought a fold-out 60-watt panel that I wired into the under the hood so that when we're camped, we can put the folding 60-watt panel out. So we had a total of like 80 watts uh, to keep, the battery topped off when we had sun in the Hummer. And then later on, I I removed the rear seat. The rear seats do fold down, of course, but they don't fold flat. So I ended up making to removing the rear seats, which saved, oh, my God, those seats must have weighed like 100 pounds of stuff that we pulled out of there. And I constructed a padded uh, flat platform with L-Track to tie down all of the gear we had in the back. I also took some, uh, was creative with making a, uh, uh, in the interior, we, we did a uh, shelf out of this uh, kind of steel shelving that you can get at Home Depot. And I suspended it from the ceiling so we could put our light stuff up there like sleeping bags. That was very cool. Yeah, that was nice. It keeps it out of the way. Um, and it's light enough that having it up high was no big deal. And we we had uh, uh, a dash mount for the, our iPad because we run Gaia for navigation. Uh, installed a two-meter ham radio in there because Ringe and I are both ham radio operators. And uh, we found some amazing seat covers. And the seats were in really good shape. The Hummer was in excellent shape, like new anyways. But we, when we were in the parking lot of Safeway in, in Bend, at one point I was looking at a, uh, there was a Toyota uh, Prado that was there in the parking lot. And I looked inside and they had these really cool seat covers. It's like, oh my God, I got to find those online. And I figured, oh man, they're probably like two, $300. And as it turns out, they were made by Cabela. And each seat cover cost 20 bucks. 
and they're the most amazing seat covers. We put them in on the seats of our our uh, sportsmobile van as well because they're just they fit so well. Something else we did was uh, towards the end last year or so, I owned it. I put like a two two and a half limp lift on, and we were running. You know, when we first got it, I ran tires, uh, mud terrain tires. They were. Can't remember what I was using, but they wore out really fast and they were really noisy and gas mileage wasn't great. So I went to Falcon Wild Peaks and we put we put Bilstein shocks all the way around, which made the ride way better. I did the same thing with our van. So let's talk a little bit about the van. Did you I, want to talk the about the most important thing is the seat covers. And that's all we need to do. Ah. That's, if you've got good seat covers, you don't need anything else. No, right. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? Well, um, I thought you were going to talk about the, I'm blanking on the name of the trailer that we had. Oh, yeah. We should talk about that because that went through, yeah, the evolution Briefly, of rooftop yeah. tent. Yeah. yeah, we had a rooftop tent. And yeah, that's really important. These are, and, and this is something that um, Scott Brady and Matt at, the podcast for Overland Journal has gone into about how important it is to not overload your vehicles. If you're driving above your gross vehicle weight rating, you're asking for trouble. Not only is it hard on the vehicle in terms of all of the stuff, the suspension, the motor, everything, but if you get in an accident and your claims adjuster with your insurance company finds out you are over gross vehicle weight, they can basically deny you any coverage. So it's an enormous liability. And people do it all the time. You know, they you, you see Wranglers that don't have even as much payload capacity as our H3 had, loaded with so much stuff that they're basically illegal. Even with suspension mods, you can say, oh, well, I beefed up the suspension. That still doesn't change the legal gross vehicle weight rating. It may accommodate the weight better, but there you go. So that being said, after I heard that podcast that those guys did on gross vehicle weight, I sat down and I started going, okay, let me see. Our Mount Shasta tent weighs this much. The roof rack weighs this much. I went through everything that I put on that vehicle aftermarket. I subtracted for the heavy back seats and added for the the the, pan, the platform I put in weighed substantially less. But we were gro- over gross vehicle weight. When you figure we're carrying recovery gear, we're carrying food, we're usually carrying at least 8 gallons, usually 10 gallons of water. I was carrying 7 gallons of spare fuel. It was over. So I decided to sell the CVT tent, and we decided to try an overlanding trailer, right? And when we were in Arizona a few years ago, we came across a company named Crux. They're still in business-ish. As far as I know, they still have a website, but I haven't seen any activity. I think the owner of the company is a woman. She... She, uh, I think her name is Frances. I think she had a, a pretty bad motorcycle get off. And I think that 
took the wind out of their sails. So I, I, I don't want to speak for them. Uh, they may still be going strong. I just haven't seen any of their trailers out there. They're basically the same trailers from the same company in China. And I want to preface this with they are amazing trailers. They are really well-designed and really well-built, better built than the majority of the, 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 the cheap, what am I trying to say, faux overlanding trailers that you'll find in the U.S. And not all of them are, are crap. <coughs> no, Bo. But, uh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, were, they were really well-made. And um, We said they're basically the same trailers as what in China? As, as uh, well, tough stuff. Okay. Gets their trailers, and there's some minor differences. Like you can, there's some differences with lights and with the roof, with either a rooftop tent system. But they're they're coming from the same company. But they're the quality of them. Just because they're from China doesn't mean they're junk. It was it was really well made, and we gave that thing a workout. We, we took it in some amazingly difficult terrain. And it never had a single issue. Um, it had a fairly extensive assembly. Yes. That and weighed on us. And there was one thing I want to say before I forget. And yeah. that was, it had an, it, it was a little too dark inside. Like I'm very sensitive to light. And t- so to me, the the color of the thing that we buy, it's very important that it... Um, just be sort of a tan or something that's not a dark green, for example. It was dark when we opened it up. And the other thing was that was so odd is it was literally colder inside of that trailer than it was outside. It seemed like every time. So I don't know how that's possible, especially given the color. like a homestead cabin. What? In Alaska. What? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, if you didn't grow up in a homestead cabin with eight miles from the nearest highway with no electricity and relatively small windows in a log cabin in the woods, then you you might like that. But oh. <laughs> Ringe grew up. Yeah, yeah. I need light. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she grew up is it was um, kerosene lamps, right, and candles. And log cabins generally are fairly dark. That's where you grew up. But yeah, it was weirdly colder. It may have been haunted. I think we got a haunt. That's why (laughs) the owner of the previous owner, we bought it used and we got an amazing deal on it. Once again. Yeah. But I think it it didn't even look used. I mean, I was arguing with the salesman. It's like, he's like used. It's like, that's bullet. That's bullshit. This yeah. is brand new. No one's I can't say I could see no tra- no sign that it had ever been used. You want to put but, in a plug for Tom's Camperland? Well, I'm guessing. Yeah, Tom's Camperland is an amazing place to get a, a wide variety of over, of true overlanding. They have some faux overlanding trailers, but they have a number of real high-end serious actual overlanding trailers that's where we got it from but i think that the owner sold it because it was haunted it was colder inside it had cold <laughs> spots every it was just one big cold spot but so you used a buddy heater with it right yeah we used the buddy heater and the cool thing about the the setup is it wasn't a rooftop tent per se it had a built-in tent system vestibule 
Well, it wasn't a vest. No. no, it's not. That's not a. That's a. It's an annex. annex. So it actually had a room that it was like eight by eight, spacious, big, with high room, greened windows, and like four people could be in there, like playing cards, and and have not feel crowded. That was very nice. Yeah, and then the 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 mattress, the sleeping quarters was you went up a ladder to the and loft. It just felt vaulted ceiling, spacious. Yeah. The the downsides to the whole overlanding trailer. There's pros and cons to everything, you know. And there's some really good trailers out there, but there's some downsides inherent to trailers. We never ran into too much of a problem, but I always, and we used it a fair bit. I mean, we, we did quite a few trips with it, and it was really nice to go from a rooftop tent to something with a room that we could escape in. But still, you have the downside of anything with that much fabric, that much surface area of fabric, is going to shed heat like crazy. So it's going to be cold, in addition to being haunted. So there's that. There were a number of times when we were in the rooftop tent, the CVT tent, and the uh, the trail, the crux trailer tent that we were out in high winds. So you spend a lot of time going, "Geez, where can we get away? You know, hide a hide away from this wind. Uh, it's a little more sheltered." You're always you're maybe even a little more sensitive than I am to the sound of things flapping. Well, that's because you're a people... sounder sleeper than I am. Sounder? Oh, right. <laughs> a more sound sleeper uh, than I am. Um, and I have some... Some people don't mind that as much as we do. Yeah. But it's definitely a factor. Yeah, well, flappy, you know, there's... Flappy. Like, I was just watching... I, I love... I'm going to give a plug to uh, Lifestyle Overland, Kevin and his family, because I think... They, they're one of the reasons that inspired me to do and do the audio podcast is I love what he does. He's, he, you know, there's just a few people out there. There's a lot of people that do YouTube, like podcast, blog for overlanding. He's a star. And, but I recently looked at one of his, watched one of his videos and I think they're in Utah and they were, they were not happy. They had a in lot. The oh, it was insanely windy. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to sleep when, you know, you've got high winds and gusty winds, you know, just constantly moving the whole rig around and flapping. It's like sleeping in a backpacking tent. It's hard to s- sleep. So that was one of the downsides. But the, the my biggest fear with the Crux trailer was being in a situation that we've been in on motorcycles and with four-wheel drive vehicles where we're in an isolated road where it's a single-lane road, narrow, maybe double track, and you're on a shelf road, so there's a cliff to your, you know, there's a hillside to your left, nowhere to go, and a cliff to your right or steep hillside that's dropping off, and there are people coming the other way. Somebody's got to back up. Mm. Or we've had huge trees that have fallen down like that day and on a motorcycle sometimes you can just you can get around things easier because you can find a way on a human powered vehicle like a like you know like a mountain bike you can just lift the freaking thing over it you know or walk around or whatever you can usually almost find a way around on a bicycle on a motorcycle it's a little bit easier four-wheel drive vehicle if it's 
if it's four feet across and blocking the road, you're not gonna you're not gonna get by with a chain even a, a chainsaw. So that means backing up for miles. And we've had to back out of some places, but it never was very far. And it was always pretty easy. But that was my nightmare is to we're on some shelf road for like miles that's somewhat technical and it's like, oh, it's washed out or there's rock slide or there's a tree across. It's like, okay, I wasn't looking forward to dealing with that. And fortunately, we never had to. There are advantages with that trailer. We could leave it and then go exploring. You know, we could base camp like when we went to the Dragoons in Arizona down near Tombstone. We, uh, we dropped the trailer and we went as far as we could go, you know, up that road with the Hummer. So uh, if you're a hunter or you like to operate out of a base camp, which we generally don't do, usually we're breaking camp every day and traveling because I have ADHD and I have to have new scenery every every day or I just get bored. So, yeah. We progressed from the the trailer... We sold the trailer when we got the van, and we found the we found the sportsmobile van that we drive. It's uh, it's the EB, so it's the long long wheelbase. So it's got quite a bit of room. It's full camper inside. Has two burner stove. Has a sink. Has a fifteen gallon water tank. It has an indoor shower, which is the stupidest thing in the universe because no one could really use it. The indoor shower is where the toilet sits, which is our emergency toilet, because normally we just use our shovel. But if we're in a situation, camp somewhere where we don't have access to a bathroom and we can't just go outside and dig a uh, cat hole in a uh, Walmart parking lot, then, uh, which they, <laughs> they you know, they, on that. they hate that, <laughs> you know, and you got to bring a jackhammer and then you got to bring a compressor for the, it's just complicated. <laughs> so... So it does have a toilet, has two fridges because we've got our top loader fridge that we've used in our trailer and our Hummer, and then we put it between the seats, and that's where our dog Wiley sleeps, sits, mostly sleeps. and In his bed. On in his bed on top of the refrigerator. We don't put him in the refrigerator. <laughs> that sounded bad. <laughs> <laughs> he hates confined spaces, like so we we rarely put him in the refrigerator. It has, like I said, it has a sink, it has a stove, so it has a full kitchen. We have a couch with lots of storage underneath. Um, Pop-top. It has the penthouse. Penthouse. Yeah, the pop-up top where it's a little cramped to sleep two people, but it has a couch, which is actually fine to sleep in. has a lagoon table, which swivels around. The passenger seat turns around, which is one of the great things about a van. That's 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 one of the big things with a van life thing is that you get to turn the seat around and use your driving compartment. Unlike a pickup truck where you can't do that with, you know, you and you with pickup truck campers, you have to get out and go around to get whereas when we're driving, like you can climb over Wiley over your seat because you're nimble and you do yoga. And you get into the back and you can make sandwiches while we're driving, like a real motorhome. So it is a motorhome of sorts. It's so. a mini moho. It's a mini moho. And 
we have, since we got it, I did a number of little things to it, like put, there was no latches on any of the doors or drawers or cupboards. So strange. It was so stupid. You'd go around a corner in the street, just street driving. Your drawers come open. And things would fly open. It's like the people that owned it before us, I don't know how they dealt with that because they were using it off-road. That When we got it, they had an, a high-lift jack with it and, you know, they had it set up with a winch and... And off-road tires, and it's like, what the hell? I well, how did you deal with that? That's crazy. Um, it does have the second fridge that I didn't mention has got a regular RV fridge. It, it runs off propane, so that's a little bit of a pain in the neck. But it does have a freezer, which is nice for ice cubes for our gin and tonics. <sighs> okay, I want to add one thing. Oh yeah, that um, when you pop the top up, what? What you see is like a tan canvas-looking siding and the windows, of which there are four that you can see through and one that you can open the flap up and then it's just mesh. So we don't use that one as often, obviously, in the winter. But your first impression is you've just gained hugely in light and spaciousness. It's very airy. The upstairs uh, loft, the bed platform is there. Those cushions actually are made so that they can be sort of hung on an angle, moved back and sort of hung up to expand your headroom. Um, And we were recently, while down in Florida this winter, we we met some new people who became friends and they invited us to stay at their... Uh, Airbnb for the night, and we ended up taking them up on that and had just a lovely time with Janelle and Stan. Yeah, I'm yeah. blanking. I, I think it was Stan. Uh, and they had a um, was it a Sprinter Mercedes Sprinter? Yeah, it was just a that... two wheel drive Sprinter camper van that they had had outfitted themselves. Yes, and well, not themselves. They had somebody do it, but it was really it, nice. It was very cool to see the inside of their rig, all professionally done, all modern, high top. So there's no pop up with high it. High so, top. Yeah, really spacious. But I have to say, it was really eye opening. Ha <laughs> ha, uh, for me to enter into that and see how dark it was inside. And the only way that you it was not dark was you had to unzip all of the insulated flaps that covered all the windows. So the difference between our rigs just made me doubly grateful that when our top comes up, um, it's suddenly much more light than it is previously. Uh, it's, it's go-to, it's default when you open it up, is light and airy, as opposed to the default being dark that you have to change in order to really have a lovely experience just hanging out inside of there. So Yeah. Well, another thing that is a huge plus for what we do and where we live is it has a furnace. It's noisy, and when we sleep, We generally don't have it on because it wakes you up every time it kicks on, which is a pain in the neck. But it's really nice on a cold evening. And even in the summer in Oregon, it can get down into the 40s at night. You know, the sun goes down, it gets cool really fast. 
So having a furnace mainly in the morning is really nice to make, you know, when it's when it's really chilly out and you wake up early and the sun's just coming up and it's nice to kick that furnace on so that when we're drinking coffee, if it's too cold to drink coffee outside, it's really nice to have a furnace. And one of the reasons that we decided to go to from the trailer to the van is the ability to to comfortably have have kind of a compact unit instead of a a vehicle and then a trailer and so that we have a place to escape to because we found that with the with the trailer having the annex was really really nice to have a place to get away from bugs from wind from cold uh, or even if it was really hot and sunny you know you could open all of the screen door screen windows and doors and get some ventilation and have shade over and have shade. And I mean, we can always use our, we have an, we had an awning on the Hummer and we have a Fiamma uh, awning, a really nice one on the van as well, but a place to escape to that's more solid. Now the pop-up has fabric around it, uh, you know, cause it's soft as, as the fiberglass top goes up. It's like a VW camper. It's like a, a hard shell rooftop tent, but it, and it can get noisy when the wind. We've been out in winds that are gusting to like sixty miles an hour. You get some noise coming through, and the insulation, as far as cold, is terrible. Uh, you know, it's once again, it's pros and cons. It's what I talk about at work. I, 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 we have a recumbent bike and trike shop, and I just give people pros and cons on stuff. So I, I think in those terms, all the time, in terms of the advantages and disadvantages. And I tell people that come in the shop and this is how I would counsel people that are listening to the podcast. If you're, if you've built a vehicle or if you're thinking about building a vehicle to just weigh the pros and cons, to look at your priorities, your values. And as Ringe mentioned the other day, your resources, you know, what your budget is, write it down or in your head what are the what are my top priorities? And when we went to the van, we were actually shopping, looking at a Hummer H2 to pull the trailer because I was worried that the the gutless 3.7 liter five cylinder motor in the Hummer H3 that we had was really I mean it could pull 5,000 pounds I think was the towing weight. And we weighed the trailer, which, by the way, the trailer weighed way more than the factory said it did. It weighed like 400 pounds more than the factory did. So we were running it, like, even loaded down, it was like 23, 2400 pounds. But when you're pulling up really steep grades, it just felt like it, it would have been nice to have more power. So we went to test drive a Hummer H2, because I hadn't driven one in quite a long time. And... I really like the vehicle, but the way they put the interior together, as Ringe said, was just crappy. But while we were at this dealership, there was this white sportsmobile four-wheel drive camper with like a Quigley conversion and a and a and a four-inch lift, and it was in really nice shape. And I'm I like asked the salesman, "Oh, that's nice. Can we look at it? Sure. How much you want for it?" He said, "A lot." And I'm not going to tell you the price. But the price he told me was ridiculous for a, for a 
sportsmobile four-wheel drive camper that was fully camperized like full all this stuff was already aboard that i've i've named and uh i, I didn't say anything uh because you're not be an, an idiot because i'm not an <laughs> idiot but it was a really good price and so we bought it and we sold that prompted us to sell the trailer and i hung on to the hummer for a while for like almost a year right mm-hmm. Because I thought, oh, well, the sportsmobile, you know, it's got a propane tank under there that doesn't make a good rock slider. And I thought, <laughs> you know, if we hit anything with that, we got to be more careful where we take it than where we would take the Hummer. And I think that's still true. But the bottom line is we've we've used the sportsmobile for basically everything. We used the Hummer like on another trip or two well, when we had the van. And we started using a ground tent. That actually worked really nice. Oh, yeah, out the back. Tell yeah, me about the, that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that, I'll briefly mention that we, I didn't want to spend the money, A, I didn't want to spend the money on an Oz tent, uh, which are really good overlanding tents made in Australia, oddly enough. Oddly enough. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, come on, that was, that was a stupid joke. So I didn't want to get an Oz tent, but I saw this thing that, Slumberjack company called Slumberjack made called the Slumber Shack, and it's really cool. It's like they saw the 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 Oz tent, and it's not a quick setup the way the Oz tent is, but it's not that slow to put it together. What it took it took us like five them. minutes to put it together. It, it was not a big deal, but it looked very similar in design, and it wasn't. It was lighter material. The 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 other reason I didn't want to get an Oz tent a it was way more expensive, and b was huge you know it's like i didn't have room inside the hummer to put it and i had i had switched the rooftop tent to a rooftop rack and i had my recovery treads up there and my roto packs and stuff like that and it's like well i don't have any place to put it on the roof rack either really comfortably so i got this thing and it's a fraction of the size and weight and the cost it weight it costs like under three hundred dollars and it has it would set up behind the Hummer, and it had a like a like an awning that came from the front of you know the the entrance of the the, the slumberjack tent to the roof of the Hummer, and so when we opened the back door of the tailgate of the Hummer with the fold down table where I did cooking. It already had an awning there. It was actually really, really cool. It was very cool. It took a little bit of negotiation to back the Hummer up to just the right spot so that we could, because it was actually yeah. designed to attach to spots on the back of the Hummer, I think. Yeah. Well, right. it went down, Those yeah, the straps, straps. Yeah, there were straps that went uh, to the roof rack and then all the way down yeah. to the to the back wheels. It was very cool. Through we the spokes of the wheels. to our first, my first ever um, sleeping cots. Yeah, we had cots that was cool. with our backpacking air pads, our, have those our Nemo pads on the uh, on the cot was that was that was nice. And we put the the fridge from inside the Hummer in between the two cots, like our bedside table. I mean, it was so cute and wonderful yeah. for a while. Yeah, it was spacious and very nice. Yeah, it was airy. Yeah, I could hear all of the sounds. Uh, the last time we used it was we did a trip. We ended up over kind of near Diamond Lake, and we were hearing weird sounds in the forest and in a tree. It was dead <gasps> calm. That's right. So either 
a dead, it was a, just a random deadfall, which is weird because there wasn't a breath of wind. Right. Or the weird sounds we were hearing were, was a Sasquatch. <laughs> yeah, there were Don't two make separate. fun of it because there no, no, have I'm been laughing. sightings over there. There's been a number of sightings. There were two different things. We were hearing that very strange, far off kind of like yeah. cry, scream, strange yeah. sound. You even yeah. recorded it. We should find that. Yeah. You recorded that. But I didn't record when the tree fell and I was and like, And then that tree That's... fell and scared the hell out of us because it was so quiet and all of a sudden, and we had no way of knowing as it was happening whether it was going to hit us yeah. or not. Yeah. It bring up that. That Zen Cohen, if a tree falls in the forest, <laughs> are you going to shit your pants because it was a Bigfoot? Isn't that how the Zen Cohen I goes? I think I've heard it differently, but yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> and then how in I the know next, it goes. And then I think you went out right then to try to see it and then didn't see where it was. And then in the morning, it we was walked really close and it and was tried huge. to find it and could not. I felt find the ground move. I know. It, it was, was like a womp. Yes. And in yeah. the morning, we walked around to try to find it. And I don't think we ever found where that tree came down. No. It was no, odd. No. Parallel universe for a. I know. It was, or something. Yeah, it was weird. Um, anyway, so that was that. We went to the van, and one of the first things I did was it came with, didn't have the stock Ford bumpers on it, had had pretty nice Renell bumpers. I didn't like the design, so I, I replaced them. We are fortunate in that we live only about 20 minutes from Buckstop bumpers, and they make... I know everybody does the Illuminous, aluminum, aluminum bumpers. Sorry, Illuminous. I, it's not worth saving 70 pounds on aluminum bumpers for bumpers that won't survive hitting a cow or a deer. And that's the, the steel bumpers. Are, they only weigh 70 pounds more, but they're amazing. Buckstop does an amazing job. So they did the front bumper. I had the winch put in. I switched the steel cable to Dyneema synthetic because it's safer and a fair lead uh, on there. They installed the Hella driving lights. There's holes for the driving lights. Uh, they installed a a uh, light bar uh, on the front. And there's several different models you can choose from you know, bumper styles, and I choose I chose the one that I thought was the most practical. They did the rear bumper with a spare tire mount and a really cool mount for a high lift jack that I also attach my shovel to. And then on the passenger side, they do a double carrier for, for like NATO cans, like five-gallon cans. So I've got a five-gallon diesel can, and I've got a five-gallon... Wavian, it's called Wavian, water can for to augment our water supply there. And I had them install uh, halogen LED, not, not halogen, LED backup lights in the bumper, which are really, really handy if people are tailgating you. And if you tap your brakes and they don't get the message, you flip those things on, <laughs> they get the message. And, uh, oh, the way the... Um, the way the old Runel bumpers were, the swing out for the spare tire and such, and for the it also had carriers for fuel. You had to undo a, a wing nut, like threaded wing nut. It was stupid. 
So these guys, they did the, the, it was the, I was the guinea pig for their, their new uh, swing outs. That's just two, a lever for each side. You just pull the lever, boom, it's up. And they're just bomb proof. Anyways, I can't say enough good things about Buckstop. They, these guys are the real deal. And they, uh, they have uh, a lot of integrity. I think they, they, they really have good design and they stand behind their product. So I did that, and we put uh, – it already had a lift. I think it's got a four-inch lift from Quigley. But I put – recently put Bilstein shocks on about a year ago. But most recently I did the uh, – I replaced the steering stabilizer with a Bilstein. And that's uh, – what a huge difference. So we kept the Hummer for a while thinking that, oh, well, we want to use it for stuff that's more burly, more technical routes. Everything we've taken the sportsmobile on, we basically we backed off a couple of things in Arizona, like in the Kofa mm-hmm. wilderness area, because I knew it was only going to get rougher and it was getting really chunky. And it's like, you know, we're living in this for four months of the winter. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to push it. But basically, we just felt like the Hummer was kind of not being used. You know, we sold it to a, a nice young guy who wants to basically take off in full time in it and use it you know, do full-time overlanding. So that's been kind of our trajectory. The, you know, the weighing these priorities between how much, another factor is how much time you're going to spend in it. You know, I wouldn't want to live in the Hummer snowbirding the way we have in Arizona for four months of the year. And I, it's, that's, that's an individual choice, you know. The the Kevin and his family at uh, Lifestyle Overland, they they do a rooftop tent, and they've got it set up so that in I think both of their their Toyota Forerunner and their Lexus, they can sleep in. One of them can sleep inside. Lucky person on a windy night, and and they're happy with that. They they like doing that, and they pull an overlanding trailer behind them. I think they use a turtle turtleback trailer and so you just got to weigh what your value you know that gets down to the values it's like what are you what are you comfortable doing and one of the things i've noticed because we've we've also rv'd i mean we've we've we just recently sold a 40 foot diesel pusher and one of the things i've noticed with the more comfortable your rv is or your vehicle that you're traveling in is the more likely you are to spend all your time inside mm-hmm. and not not really be outside, which is what camping is supposed to be all about, you yeah. know. The more comfortable and the more you do everything you can or let yourself get talked into by the salesman, um, duplicating your home. Yeah. Basically, your home that you're trying to leave and go explore the the country or the, the world um, the more you're talked into trying to replicate everything that you have there, all the luxuries, yeah. all the conveniences, all you've, the television sets. You've turned your suburban neighborhood into yeah. a, a an RV neighborhood, which a lot of them are like, and that's one of the reasons they're like, ah, you know what, I'm just... We were spending our winters in the, in the motorhome, and the more overlanding we were doing, especially with the van, we were saying, it's like, you know, I really don't like being in campgrounds. I, I mean, it has its upsides. You know, there's nice people, especially 
we're members of the escapees RV club and they're really nice folks. And we much prefer being away from people unless they're, you know, we're traveling with friends or, you know, meeting folks along the way that are overlanding, but campgrounds are getting more and more crowded with the pandemic. RVs sales have gone just berserk. And so consequently, campgrounds are becoming more and more crowded they're just more dense they're packed in there and it's not the kind of experience we're looking for and that's not the kind of experience people that are listening to this are looking for they they're they want to be out in nature not having to spend oh my god when we were in the keys there were people that were spending three hundred dollars a night you couldn't find a campsite for less than 150 170 a night and the really fancy ones with the RV resorts, they were $300 a night. That's insane. So that's where we arrived at the decision to sell the, sell the motorhome and just stick to overlanding. So we spend more time outside. Maybe not as much as we did with the Hummer when we went to the when we had the rooftop tent or when we were using the ground tent, this lumberjack tent, we were able to escape to the interior of the van. But it's not roomy like the like the motorhome was. I mean, for God's sakes, we had a washer and dryer in that thing. We had a stand-up shower and a bathroom. That, you know, it's like you could wander. You could get space. I could be in the front. She could be in the bedroom. wheels, yeah. It's like a house. But the van isn't isn't like that. It's... It's a place to retreat to when the mosquitoes, which are highly prevalent starting pretty soon here in Oregon, even in eastern Oregon, in Paisley, Oregon, they have a mosquito festival. In the, I think it's the end of June. Oh, God. Why would you want to celebrate that, for God's sakes? But I guess there's not much else going on in Paisley. Maybe they dip them in chocolate. That's always tasty. Oh, maybe so. And so we are able to escape wind and you know just inclement weather cold wind um we recently when we went to heart mountain we when we bought the 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 van there was a duffel bag with some weird fabric like camo weird fabric thing and the salesman's like oh that's a shower curtain for the indoor shower no it's not i pulled it out it's like that's not a shower curtain it was a very well made insulated fabric that snapped into the penthouse fabric it 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 on the inside it snapped right in there and the insulated difference liner insulated liner thank yes. you it it made an amazing difference not only for you could still hear the the little in the heart mountain episode you you'll hear the brook that's we camped near you can still hear the the water but the difference in the, it was so much warmer. It was. Oh my God. You just, that single layer of that fabric on the penthouse would just bleed heat. And the the, the furnace, <clears throat> when we're, excuse me, when we're sitting around at night and it was getting really chilly out, the furnace normally would, when that penthouse is up, it, it just would kick on and off every, literally every two minutes. And, when the when that insulated layer that liner was in there the furnace would it would be like 
20, 30 minutes between it, it kicking on. That's how well insulated it was. Mm-hmm. So that I just wish it wasn't camo. I'm not a huge fan of camo. I'm and not I'm, against hunting at all, but I just and think... And I miss the light. Yeah. Because having that in there, you lose those windows. Yeah, you do. You've got to... Yeah, we had to... In the morning, we... It's pretty easy to peel it back so that we could open the front windows to the penthouse and get the light in and the air if we wanted. But speaking of kind of like the pros and cons, but also just priorities, values, I know some people, they're happy with a small little tent. They they either drive somewhere during the day so they're not hanging around the camp much at all or... They make a fire every single night, and they sit out until they're ready to go to sleep. Um, we Which have, we're doing more of now because well, we've got that. Yeah, you were going to talk about it. Yeah, and we've uh, we've tended. We're we're a little on the older side now. We we like our comforts. Um, we're we're sociable, but not all evening. We need our downtime, both of us, and so. Um, we have not tended to make fires. Maybe just a little bit of laziness, a little bit of like, you know. A lot of laziness. The, the hassle. And we don't like leaving fire scars because a lot of times we camp yeah. in places where there's no fire ring. Right. It's like, well, I don't want to I don't want to scar the landscape. It's beautiful here, you know. We want to leave no trace. Right. We are huge believers in tread lightly. We don't just go cross country and and we don't spin our tires and we don't we want to have as minimal an impact we want to leave the place better than the way we found it so we have a trash oh i do have a trash room on the we back pick of up the, garbage the van we so see. we put put trash in there she's better at it than i am because now we take turns honey. Yeah. so anyway tell them about your uh new cool oh the pop-up fire, fire pit, pit thing. yeah yeah uh, another wonderful uh video youtube channel is jason with primal overland and he reviewed the i watch a lot of his videos he's from the oregon area uh we have similar vans he he travels in a four-wheel drive sportsmobile van that he's outfitted himself and he's used a number of different uh, fire pit fire means of having some warmth at night even cooking his food and he reviewed the pop-up fire pit which is awesome. It's only like, what, like 20, 24 inches long, maybe six inches around, weighs about eight pounds, and it won't leave a scar on the ground. And it really burns all of the wood to ash. And the other nice thing about it is, unlike an existing fire ring, I don't know if Jason mentioned this, but the cool thing about it is a lot of the places that you go when you're overlanding, if there is a fire ring, you have to park your rig, you know, you might want to, well, you probably want to park your rig somewhere close to it so that you can be under the awning if it's kind of raining or just so that you have proximity for when you're cooking or hanging out. And so with a fire pit, you can park wherever you want and just put the fire pit there. And it's very low impact and uh, efficient use of wood. So it's nice to be able to hang out longer at night instead of have to go inside and turn the furnace, listen to the furnace kick on and off. You know. So we have that. And then you might mention the griddle that you use. That is so fantastic. Oh, God. That's like our favorite yeah. thing. But now we have the fire. It's actually the only reason we overland. 
Because of the cool food yeah. that you make yeah. on it. <laughs> I built the entire structure of our overlanding system and rig around, around the. You started with a griddle, and we went. Everything went from there. <laughs> you built everything. That's right. Else you're like, you know, a lot of people use the scotels, scottle, scotel, tomato, tomato, and I think they're really awesome for what they do. But it's basically like a really expensive walk. It's not quite as concave as a walk is. Pretty walkish. And they're pretty versatile. And people that have them love them. I won't, you know, I'm not going to say anything bad about them. I'm just saying that having been a professional cook, I've worked in kitchens before, I want a flat grill. I can, I can, I like using these really big industrial spatulas. We love to grill like huge quantities of vegetables that are marinated. I like to do steaks on there. Uh, it's hard to do uh, fried eggs on the scotal because they want to run, you know. Oh, yeah. So I like a flat surface. I do eggs, pancakes, bacon, um, home fries. I do our dinners. I. It's connected to a – when we got the van, it had a high pressure, which is kind of weird, has a high pressure, quick disconnect, connect, disconnect valve right under the, the side doors with a valve. I was able to figure out a hose connection, regulator, and filter, propane filter that I could plug into the 17-inch the Blackstone griddle. It's like 17-inch square. And so I set those that on a folding table. And uh, it's right near the kitchen. I've got like an eight-foot hose, so I can move it around a little bit. And uh, I can just turn that on. I can power it. So I don't have to use like disposable, throwaway, one-pound Coleman canisters. I can power it off of our big propane, built-in propane tank. It's wonderful because in a van with a two-burner stove where it doesn't have a lot of clearance around it or above it, you don't want to be frying ha- greasy hamburgers or bacon or, is it, you know, and all the smells in that small space. Well, the heat we use that and the griddle humidity. almost every night that we're doing stuff. Yeah. And we will we'll boil our water for coffee or make soup or anything on the stove that's not going to make a lot of steam or smells or grease, we'll do inside. If it's extreme weather outside, we'll make do we'll figure it out but i, think I we use plan that. our uh, menus our meals largely around what the weather's doing yeah are yeah. we going to want to cook it inside is it easy and quick so we're not putting too much heat and humidity into the surrounding surfaces yeah um, is yeah. it windy into and cold outside yeah using the griddle i mean i do have a, a folding windscreen that i put around wherever the wind's coming from because it will take some of the heat away even though the the burner, the dual burner underneath is really pretty well protected. But it's it's been a godsend. I mean, oh man. We've had some really good meals on that. Salmon and marinated veggies is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. I know that a lot of the podcasts that are out there about overlanding really primarily around gear. And this episode has been almost exclusively about gear and that they all won't be like this. It bores my wife 
to tears. <laughs> not that I want, bad, but let's call it quits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm a gearhead, so I love gear, but I also love kind of the the meta view of subjects, uh, the, you know, the, the, the deeper meaning behind what we're doing and the experience of it, you know, like what we're going to be doing with the, the Heart Mountain episode that we already have in the can and other trips. We're planning a lot of trips this summer that we want to take you along on the sound of what we're being in and the nature and what we're experiencing. And it's a little more work when you're trying to tell a story rather than show a story because a picture's worth a thousand words. And even though I can easily spout off many thousands of words, I I still need to make it so that w- when you're listening, you're engaged and it makes sense. And, and you're brought into the moment of being with us on these trips. And that's my goal. And so we'll we'll mix it up between gear and philosophy and the deeper spirituality behind overlapping, maybe. Because we're uh, always going to try to throw yeah, that in there. Like the, the Zen Cohens, uh, for example. Well, I'd like to ask, too, if people have stuck with us this far today, uh, would love to hear your thoughts on, do you feel like we have it covered with the three things that we came up with that we feel really kind of summarize the process people go through in determining what rig what gear, what adventures, and so on. And they are resources, priorities, and And, values. And values. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, let us know. Love to hear your thoughts on that. And and the the other, the the priorities that I outlined, safety, gear capacity, comfort, convenience, independence, those, those categories as well. So we'll pick up on this more from time to time. Um, just because I think it's interesting. And I want to thank everybody, if you've made it this far, for listening to us. And we'll see you next time on Wheel Adventures.